And a lot of times when I'm talking to people in the context of pastoral practice, whether in the confessional or in the office, I'll often say some variation of like, you got to focus on the why behind the what. In other words, quite apart from external behavior or external manifestations of sin, you got to kind of ask yourself, like, why is it that I do the things that I do, right? In terms of unmet needs or expectations or uh, past wounds, past brokenness, whatever the case may be. That said, it kind of occurred to me recently that perhaps that particular principle as articulated, again, this notion of the why behind the why, it might sound a little bit too abstract. So given all that, for our purposes today, I thought I might kind of focus on making the thing a little more real, a little more concrete, and a little more practical. So as an important starting point, let's take a look at the book of Genesis, right? And so in the advent of original sin, what happens to our first parents, Adam and Eve? They are afraid and they hide, right? And so God goes looking for them. And it's not like God doesn't know where they are, right? But God knows that something is amiss in terms of Adam's heart. And so he goes to him to kind of offer him peace and reconciliation, healing, all those things. And so what God says to Adam specifically is, you know, Adam, where are you? In response to which Adam says what? He says, I was afraid because I was naked and so therefore I hid. And so again, I was afraid because I was naked, and so therefore I hid. Now, what's interesting about this particular response on the part of Adam is that it's actually kind of funny depending on how you look at it, right? Because the reality is Adam was always naked, right? He was always vulnerable before the world, before Eve and before God, right? But before it didn't bother him. And the reason why is because he trusted in God's providence, right? And so go back to the catechism of the Catholic Church, right? What preceded original sin? Adam and Eve allowed trust in the creator God to die in their hearts, right? And so uh, again, more to the point, before the fall, before original sin, Adam and Eve both had deep trust in the Creator God, and so they could be vulnerable before each other, before the world, before God, and it didn't bother them. But now, because of this lack of trust, because of original sin, Adam is fearful of his own vulnerability. And of course, in response, what does Adam do? He hides, right? And in this, perhaps we might find a recurring pattern throughout the history of humankind, right? So whenever we too experience the existential reality of our own vulnerability, by virtue of the fact of being human, what do we do? We tend to do some variation of hide, right? We reach, we cling, we possess, we try to control all these manifestations and dysfunctions flowing from original sin, right? So again, a variation of, I was afraid because I was naked and so therefore I hid. You know, St. Ignatius, who of course is the founder of the Jesuit order, he further expounds upon this by talking about the three primary ways by which our fallen nature seeks to find a false sense of security apart from the Creator God. So again, he cites three things, and those three things are pride, vanity, and sensuality. And so just to kind of walk you through these things one at a time, to think about the notion of pride. So Brett Powell talks about this, and so he says basically the sin of pride revolves around this notion that I tell myself that I'm okay and my life is okay because I say that things are okay. And so the example that comes to mind is the first season of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which of course you can find on Disney Plus, right? And so I just kind of trust you know who Obi-Wan Kenobi is, right? But he's obviously one of the great heroes in the context of the Star Wars saga. But uh, anyways, uh, partway through this particular season, um, he finds himself in the midst of this practice tool, and he's, he's battling his student, his primary student, otherwise known as Anakin Skywalker, who of course will become Darth Vader later on in the series. And in the midst of this battle or duel, Obi-Wan Kenobi uses the occasion to basically teach Anakin Skywalker a couple key lessons about life. 
And so first of all, he notices that Anakin is being overly aggressive. So he, he chides Anakin for his aggressiveness, reminding him that a Jedi Knight is meant to protect life primarily as opposed to try to take it. And then on top of that, and this is kind of more to the point, um, he says two things, which are basically two sides of the same coin, right? So first of all, what he says is like, Anakin, um, your need for victory, it blinds you. And then he goes on to say that your desire to prove yourself will ultimately be your undoing. And you know, for myself, when I saw this scene and I heard these two lines, I remember thinking to myself, wow, like that's, that's really interesting and that's really profound. But at the same time, I thought to myself, I, I really hope people don't misunderstand the point. Because the takeaway message, if you think about it, just to kind of bring it back explicitly to a Christian context, is not so much to say that winning doesn't matter or success doesn't matter, right? We're not interested simply in participation trophies and we're not saying that you know failure is, is something to be celebrated. But instead, the point I think is that who you are at the end of the day is a child of God, loved and cherished unconditionally by your Father in heaven. And so therefore, any inclination you have to sort of embellish your sense of worth or identity by looking at yourself as the sum of your gifts or talents or accomplishments or, or through victories or whatever, um, it has the effect of actually diminishing your sense of dignity and self-worth as opposed to actually embellishing it. So again, who you are at the end of the day is a child of God, no more, no less. Okay, now obviously this kind of begs the question, like what can we do to address the deadly sin of pride? Well, what comes to mind is this notion of cultivating actively and intentionally the virtue of gratitude. And so John Eldridge talks about this, right? And so basically what he says is that when you're going through life and you experience something beautiful or amazing, you know, something which touches your heart or moves your soul, to be really explicit about like, you know, acknowledging, first of all, like, I love this. And then to say on top of that, you know, God loves us too. And when you do that, what you're doing is that you're acknowledging the gift. God has explicitly and intentionally gifted to me this beautiful moment for my unique purposes, right? He, he wants to move my heart. He wants to touch my soul again through this beautiful moment. And when I say, you know, I love this and God loves us too, I'm acknowledging again the gift which has been given. And when I do that, funny enough, what happens? I cultivate in my heart this notion of wonder and receptivity and gratitude all the constituent elements of the virtue of humility. And by doing so, I'm actively working against the deadly sin of pride because humility is diametrically opposed again to the deadly sin of pride. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. But the second thing is the notion of vanity, right? This idea that I tell myself that I'm okay and, and things are okay because people say that I'm okay. And perhaps we might see in this, you know, the allure and attraction of social media, right? So uh, the compulsion to look for likes and shares and followers, right? It's a variation of looking for people to tell me that I'm okay, right? Or to take a more, even more simplistic example, think about how often we walk into a room and immediately identify the people who are the tallest, the strongest, the prettiest, uh, the most powerful, the most wealthy, and compare ourselves to those people. All these different things are variations of the deadly sin of vanity. And so again, it kind of begs the question, like, what do we do about this? What do we do about the sin of vanity? Well, one thing that comes to mind is to actively build your sense of identity based on what God says to you as opposed to what the world says to you, especially as God's will and his desires and his hopes for you are revealed to you through the gospel and through the Bible in general. So they also the point, think about the gospel of Luke chapter 10, right? So the Lord in the context of the story, he sends out his disciples two by two to spread the good news. 
But in advance of this, he gives them really specific instructions, right? And one of the most famous instructions he gives in this regard is that he says to them, like, look, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. And so again, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. And by doing this, he's sort of managing expectations, right? So, you know, just think about the image, right? Sheep in the midst of wolves, you know, play the odds. Chances are you'll be rejected a lot more than you're actually accepted, right? But then think about what he says to them at the end of the story, right? So he, what he says basically is, look, um, if you offer your peace to someone and they accept it, fine. But here's the thing, right? If they reject it in a certain sense, that's fine too. And so if you read between the lines, the takeaway message in a certain sense is like, look, if you're faithful in doing the few things the Lord wants you to do carefully and well, right? Doing what he wants you to do, going where he wants you to go, being who he wants you to be. Even if the world doesn't acknowledge you for doing these things and in fact rejects you for it, you rejoice and be glad. Your names are written in the kingdom of heaven, right? Who you are at the end of the day, again, is a child of God, no more and no less. And your dignity and value of these things persist independent of the whims of public opinion. Okay, but that brings us to the third and final thing that St. Ignatius talks about. And again, this is the notion of sensuality. And this is kind of interesting. So basically behind the notion of sensuality is this idea that um, I tell myself that I'm okay and my life is okay because I give myself this, this feeling of pleasure. And based on, on the feeling or experience of pleasure, again, I made the conclusion that I'm okay and my life is okay. And so to use a couple of easy examples, think about the inclination to soothe the soul, soothe the aching soul through, through chips or beer or, or through pornography, right? So the experience of sensuality and from that I draw the conclusion that again, I'm okay and my life is okay. And again, this kind of begs the question, like what can we do moving forward when it comes to the inclination to give in to sensuality? Well, one thing that comes to mind is to actively choose to persist in the way of trust and hope precisely in the midst of your own trials and experiences of personal darkness. And so they also with the point, imagine you've come to the end of a really rough day. And so maybe work didn't go according to plan and now you've come home and, and now your home life is chaotic, right? So fights and, and conflict with your spouse and your kids and whatnot. And so now it's, it's nine o'clock and the question is like, what do you do? And so for example, do you choose to go the way of pride, telling yourself relentlessly that things are okay because I say things are okay, despite the chaos outside, right? Do you go the way of vanity, you know, looking at social media and, and looking for external affirmation? Or do you go the way of sensuality, you know, again, reaching for the chips and the beer and the porn? Or do you look to your father in heaven, trusting and believing that in the words of Brett Powell, it is only my father in heaven who can give me the deep assurance that I'm okay and my life is okay. Because the same thing that I remember, right, is that when it comes to the virtue of hope, Hope doesn't imply that you have all the answers, right? And so just because I'm practicing the virtue of hope, it doesn't mean that I know exactly how God's going to get me out of this pickle. I just trust and believe that he will, right? In other words, in the midst of this experience of darkness and trial, do I realize that I still have a choice? I can still choose to believe that God is real, that he is love, that he is my father, that his ways are not always my ways, that his ways are actually better than my ways, and that salvation is always preceded by the cross. If I remember that I still have the choice to believe in these things in the midst of my darkness and trials, perhaps I might realize on top of that, that from that can be born faith, hope, and trust, unwavering trust in my Father in heaven. Okay, one final example, and I'll kind of end with this. So one of my favorite movies of all time is called The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. And I realize that a lot of people hate that movie, but I love it, right? 
And basically, you know, it's a kind of a basic plot. There's this town, um, this village, if you will, which is being terrorized by these seemingly supernatural monsters, right? And so basically what happens is that whenever these monsters threaten to encroach upon the boundaries of the village, um, someone rings this bell and everyone goes hiding in, in their cellars, right, in their basements. But anyways, one of the best scenes in the movie takes place when the lead character, Ivy, uh, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, um, instead of retreating immediately to the cellar, she waits on the porch of her home. And she reaches out her hands, right? And what she's doing, she's waiting for her beloved, uh, this guy named Lucius, played by Joaquin Phoenix. And so the idea is, is even though there's this recurring inclination to hide, to save oneself, she waits and she waits for her beloved to save her in the midst of her own personal trial and darkness. And so it's a really beautiful scene, right? So she's extending out her hands and everyone else in, in the scene, they're, they're already kind of partway in the cellar and they're urging her to join them in, in the cellar, right? But she waits and she's like, no, I, I will not move. And she's on the verge of tears and the monsters are coming and all of a sudden, you know, Walking Phoenix comes, grabs her hand, the violin music kind of kicks in. And it's this really beautiful thing. You should really kind of look it up on YouTube. But um, it's really emblematic of this thing we're talking about today, right? So when you look at the human condition, yeah, there's always the inclination to hide because I'm aware of my own vulnerability. But to go back to all these things we've been talking about today, right? So yes, by way of being human, I am vulnerable. I am weak. But rather than have that be a cause of concern or an excuse to kind of save myself, to wait and trust in the Lord. The Lord will save me. Only God the Father can tell me that I'm okay and my life is okay. And so in waiting for that, I, I need to hold firm, to toe the line and not give into the inclination to go the way of vanity and pride and sensuality. God will save you in a moment of greatest need. When you experience that as a result of waiting, you realize that, wow, this is the best way to do it, right? And you gotta come back to this principle, right? Trust in God grows by trusting in God. And so again, if you have the courage and the wherewithal to basically hold your ground and to wait for the Lord to save you as opposed to going the way of saving yourself because of your fears and apprehensions, you can realize in retrospect that, yeah, I can trust this. I can build my life around this deep sense of trust in the Creator God. And when you do that, quite frankly, that is a much better way and easier way to live. And may God bless you all.